Hi, everybody. It's Mind Rolling with David Silver and Raghu Marcus is I. And we have a wonderful guest today, all the way from South Africa, John Lockley. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Raghu. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys. Yeah, and uh, John is in Holland, so this is really international today, folks. Very uh, much so. Yeah. Uh, so I, um, John is a, uh, a shaman. Now, many of you out there uh, know about shamanism. Particularly, you probably know about it more from South America. And uh, many of you may have read the Don Juan books, which is how I got introduced to shamanism uh, way back when, David and I. Right, Dave? Of course, you read those books. Yeah, yeah that and the uh, Bruley Sioux medicine man who I studied with. So, uh huh, yeah. right. Uh, and uh, when I first started talking, and John is going to tell us his background and everything, so you'll get an idea. But interestingly, when I first started talking to to John, I uh, I said, "So is ayahuasca a part of your tradition?" And he said, "No, it is not." And I, like many of you out there, thought, gee, isn't ayahuasca concomitantly involved with shamanism? And, of course, that's a narrow view, and John explained that narrow view to me. And uh, so, um, we're let, but we're going to get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. John, uh, and, and I, I'd like you to give us a little bit going through your past, because, the, uh, folks, it's very unusual for a South African white man who's, who's of Irish and uh, German uh, and... Uh, English, English and descent. Eng Eng English descent, yeah. okay. <laughs> and a big thing. There. Irish and English. Yeah. Uh, to uh, be accepted into, uh, in this particular case, it's Sangoma uh, tradition. Uh, and John will talk about that. But talk a little bit about your... Um, I mean, this is a, a very um, rich upbringing that you have and maybe you start around the time that you were uh, in the um, military service in South Africa. Yes, thanks Raghu. Well, uh, my story is a, a very long story and it can take a, a number of hours to tell so I have to try and condense it uh, you dramatically. Give us the Wikipedia or whatever. I'll give you the blow by blow, try and make it as simple as possible. Yeah. So I think to begin with, it's good to let the listeners know that um, a Sangorma is a traditional shaman from Southern Africa and we are known as Sangormas because we are known as people of the song because we use rhythms and songs to help connect with the spirit world and also to help connect other people with the spirit world. We also use medicinal plants. Um, however, a lot of the medicinal plants we use are what I call portal or gateway plants. And they would be even higher, a higher spec than your hallucinogenic plants because they really bring you in a, in a very immediate way into the spirit world without making you high as such. So it's a, it's a different classification of plants, which is um, still being studied at the moment in Southern Africa. But anyway, my own journey started, or first of all, I could say that uh, to become a Sangorba in Southern Africa and also a traditional shaman, you have to be called. You don't suddenly decide you want to do a few weekend courses or suddenly wake up and say, I have a choice. I can either be a priest, a psychologist, a shaman or a doctor. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You you are called by your spirits. You are called by your ancestors. And very often in the in the Southern African tradition, you get what's called a twaza or or shamanic illness, and it's often very very extreme, and it brings you sometimes close to death. In my case, uh, I was very very sick for over seven years, and um, one of the hallmarks of the illness in the Southern African system, in the Sangoma way, is is getting very very thin. And sometimes it was confused with AIDS, so they often used to send people for blood tests to rule out the AIDS virus. Uh, they did the same with me. So I went for blood tests, and the doctors couldn't understand why I was so skinny. But coming alongside the, the illness where you get very thin, you also get a lot of very psychic dreams. I call them calling dreams, where you are being um, called on by the ancestors or spirit realm, 
and you are shown certain things, you are shown medicines, you are shown herbs, you are showing the illnesses of people and how to help them, um, all kinds of out-of-body experiences. And this can sound glamorous nowadays because people are very interested in shamanism. But it's actually very, very painful because when you come down from these experiences and you wake up, you don't know how to live a normal life, which is what happened to me. Mm. So um, I think I, I can start my story a little bit at the, in the beginning and just say that uh, my calling to become a, a Sangoma actually started before I was born. And it started in Dublin, in Ireland. It started with my mother because my mother had dreams about going to Africa and working with elephants. Elephants are one of our main totems in South Africa, and they represent the medicine people under the river or in the spirit world. So when I was born, I was born with a white clay over my eyes, with the birth skin. And, uh, and as I came out, my mother looked at me, and she looked at the doctor, and she said, uh, he looks like a little abo, a little aborigine, <laughs> because I had this white birth skin over my eyes, which was very, very unusual and very strange. And years later, when my teacher, when my mother finally met my teacher, she, um, she also had this, this clay around her eyes, which is the mark of the cross of Sangoma. And my mother actually had forgotten my birth. And uh, when she met my teacher, Mam Guevu, she said to her, you know, it's so strange, you know, that clay around your eyes, because when John was born, he was born with that clay. It looked just like that. And she said to her through the translator, that's not strange. Um, John was born just like me to become a Sangoma. So uh, I can go to the, to the age of 17 when my calling started with the dreams. And uh, I, was, I was dreaming of walking in the forests of South America looking for, looking for gold. And uh, I think at that stage I might have even been 16. Anyway, I was searching for gold and, um, and then I found the gold. And as I woke up, there was a woman's voice that said to me, John, in order for you to find your gold, find the, your inner gold, you need to come close to death. And at that stage, like I say, I'd just woken up. At that stage, it was the South African uh, Civil War. There was a war on Angola. And uh, white men from the age of 16 were being conscripted into the South African army. So I knew that uh, I had to go into the army um, and I, I had a couple of years to wait. But one of my advantages is that I was able to choose which sector of the armed forces to go into. And because I had a very good education, I was at a private school and all the rest, I chose the medical corps. And fortunately, they accepted me because I had biology and maths and science um, to quite a high level at, um, at school. So I was accepted into the medical corps. And then my first assignment was actually working with special forces soldiers from, uh, from Angola. Uh, they had just come from the war in Angola, and the Angolan war had just ended in December 1989. And uh, I was conscripted in January 1990, and there was a lot of soldiers that came into the military hospital where I was working. So I was in charge. My first assignment at the age of 18 was... Um, working in one military hospital, which is the same hospital where Nelson Mandela died. And my first assignment was helping to rehabilitate soldiers from, from the war. And uh, most, of my, most of my patients, most of them were special forces soldiers, and most of them were black, black soldiers. And they came from Angola, Mozambique, Namibia, and all over South Africa. So we had probably the highest concentration of of, of special forces soldiers at any one time in, in that rehabilitation ward. So I felt very fortunate because one of the things I noticed with these men, they were very disciplined, very focused, and also very humble, very humble. You know, they weren't arrogant men at all. And uh, there was some kind of strength, inner strength that I, I felt, and it really touched me deeply, and I was very impressed with them. And I just did my best to, to do my job as a, as a medic to help them and uh, help them with their rehabilitation. And my duties were just to observe them and get them anything they needed. So if they needed extra appointments, if they needed extra medicines, then I would call in the specialists, the doctors, and alert them to what's happening to one of the soldiers. So anyway, my story started, my first Angoma story started in this rehabilitation ward where every day I used to walk into the ward and I used to say, good morning, guys, did you have any good dreams? And, uh, and they would be quiet. I'd open the curtains, the sunshine would, would, the sun would come, come into the room 
it's a beautiful day, and uh, the room would be completely silent like a church. No one would answer me. Then the second day I went into the ward, opened the curtains and said again, good morning guys, did you have any good dreams? Again, there was a silence, there was no one speaking. Now in this ward there was just black guys because uh, there was segregation, it was still apartheid. Even though the ward was mixed with white guys, each of the rooms it was segregated. So you just have white or just have black and so on. So this particular room was black special forces <laughs> guys. I know it's crazy for people nowadays, but I just need to uh, emphasize that. So the third day I walked into the room, I opened the curtains and I said, good morning, guys. Did you have any good dreams? And, uh, and again, there was the silence. Mm. And, and I just need to mention that one of the reasons why I asked that question is because I'm, I'm brought up in an Irish family where my mother um, dreams, where my grandmother was a dreamer. And it's normal for me to be speaking about dreams. That's the way I was brought up. Anyway, there was silence again. And suddenly at the back of the room, there was a, a sergeant by the name of Sergeant Maluleki, a special forces sergeant with a lot of uh, power and um, a lot of authority. And he, he shouted out to me, Private, come over here. <laughs> I want to speak to you, medic. So I went over to his bedside and I said, um, Yes, Sergeant, sir. How can I help you? He said, Private, in my culture, dreams are very sacred. When I dream, my ancestors show me who is going to live and who is going to die in my platoon. I tell my men, this is your time. Your ancestors are calling, calling you. Some of them laugh at me and they still die. He said, in my culture, dreams are sacred. Please don't ask me again whether I've had any good dreams. I said to him, thank you, sir. Thank you, Sergeant. I said, no, I won't. Now, Sergeant Maluleki was in training to become a, a Sangoma. He was a Zulu man, like I say, and uh, every day the black nursing staff would bring him gifts. And I, and I mentioned black because the white culture would have no idea about Sangoma culture, and if they did, um, it was mostly derogatory. It's mostly seen in a... In a Sadly, um, it's, it's stereotyped. African spirituality is stereotyped and treated in quite a negative way throughout the world, actually, but in particular in South Africa. So um, I'm hoping to, to change things with the work I do, actually. But anyway, I heard what Sergeant Maluleki said, and then three months later, I started my own calling where I received these dreams. Now, the way it happened for me was I actually asked the, the matron of the hospital to get me a transfer into an intensive care unit where I could work with dying soldiers. Now you might say, why would he do that? And I did that because uh, my calling was so strong that I loved working with these special forces soldiers, but they were not at death's door. They were suffering, incredible suffering, yes, but I still hadn't fulfilled my, my calling in terms of what that lady said to me, what the, what the woman said to me when I woke up about being close to death. She said, um, that's when I'm close to death, then, then my, my destiny would become clear. So anyway, so my, the matron of the hospital, of the military hospital, organized a transfer for me to go into um, not the intensive care ward because it was full at that time, but the neurology ward, which is an offshoot of the intensive care ward. So within, I went there and within a few days, I put my um, first patient into a body bag. It was quite terrific for me, and I was only 18. It was a huge thing for me. But I did it with a full heart because I felt the call of working with, with, with very sick people and with the dying. And then the next uh, patient I had, I nursed him for six weeks, and I watched him die. And that was the, the breaking point for me, actually, because he was 21 years old. He had numerous injuries from a car accident, and, um, and every day his mother would ask me if he was going to live or die. So it was quite horrific, and um, we had a number of uh, had a number of uh, plugs and tubes that were going into him to keep him alive. And the, the the there was a meeting with the nursing staff and the doctors, as well as his family, and it was decided to to turn off the machines and and let him go, let the let the young man go, you know, peacefully. So they did that, and then it was my job to listen to his pulse, to do the, the last vital observations. So I was literally feeling his pulse 
as he was passing over. So uh, it was my last shift and I was watching him lying there and all the family and doctors were there. And I was just about to leave and I just made a prayer. I just said, please, God, show me another way of healing that if I'm ever in this situation again, I can do something because this, this situation is wrong because I can't connect with his spirit and we have the best medicine in the world here. It's like a private hospital, this military hospital. And even though it was the best medicine in the world, we couldn't do anything for Ian and he kept suffering and, and he was on his way out. So I left and, um, and then uh, when I returned the next day, his bed was clear and he had gone, he had died. So it was pretty hard for me. And, um, and then a friend of mine introduced me to Zen Buddhism. And he said, um, I said, uh, he said he's learning French and the lady happens to also be a Zen nun. And her teacher is the, is the great Zen master, Deshimaru, from uh, Japan. And I said, what is Zen? What is Buddhism? And he said, well, the one thing about Zen and Buddhism is that it accepts that life is suffering and it helps you to do something about it. And he got me. Just in that moment, he got me. I said, okay, I'll, I'll go and I'll check it out. So I went with him and I practiced like a soldier. You know, I, I did almost full lotus. I chanted like a soldier, like a samurai. I gave absolutely 150% into it. I looked at the books. I studied. I learned the chants. I did the Heart Sutra. And then a few, maybe a month later, I did my first retreat uh, in the mountains. I had, a, I think, a leave from the army for about five days, and I went into the mountains. I did my first retreat. And uh, it was my first silent retreat with a few other people in the Zen, uh, the Japanese Zen Soto tradition. And, um, and I meditated really hard. And at the end of the retreats, I went home to Johannesburg and I was going to go to the hospital the next day. And then that night I had my calling dream, the dream where I was called to become a traditional shaman, to become a Sangwoma. And in that dream, it was the most powerful, one of the most powerful dreams I've had in my life. And in that dream, I saw, uh, in those days, I called them a witch doctor because I never knew the Sangwoma culture. I just knew the words of the colonizers of, um, the, you know, the people who colonized us in South Africa. They'd call the traditional healers, the black healers, the witch doctors. So I called him the witch doctor and uh, he came to me in the dream. His eyes were shining like these diamonds and he had all these animal skins around him and I could smell herbs. It was like, it was, it was like, an, it was so, so vivid. And we had this conversation and I said to him, please teach me about healing. Teach me about nature. And I said, um, teach me about, about suffering, please. And he was quiet. And then I said to him again, I repeated the question, please teach me about nature, teach me about suffering, teach me about everything. <laughs> and then he started talking to me and he said to me, I think I asked him the question three times again, there's something good about three, you know. <laughs> and then suddenly he started talking to me and he said to me, if I accept you, if I accept to train you, he said, you're going to get very, very sick, come close to death. He said, that's the way it is in my culture. And that's the way you learn about this medicine. And then I said to him again, please teach me. I said, I've, I've just witnessed the death of one of my patients. It's apartheid. It's a civil war. Everything is uh, upside down here in South Africa. All the soldiers are my friends, but they're in such suffering and pain. I can't, I'm, I can't even explain it to you, sir. And I said to him, and I've just put my dog down, my favorite dog, and I'm only 18. I said, my life is over. And he said, okay. And suddenly there was this vision in front of me of the future. He showed me the future, five years into the future. And uh, everything sub subsequently came to, to pass, this, that five-year vision. But when I woke up from the dream, my legs were covered in boils, covered. And uh, as I say, I had to go back to the hospital because that was my job. And I went into, I went into the, the um, speak to one of the doctors to have my, myself checked out. And I contracted a tick bite fever. It was a physical illness. It was in the blood. They did blood tests. I had tick bite fever, which they thought was very strange because none of my other friends had contracted tick bite fever. There was five of us or seven of us on that retreat. And I was the only one who had contracted uh, tick bite fever. So I was put on a course of antibiotics, um, but I was happy because I realized that the witch doctor, my, my Sangoma teacher, had accepted to teach me. And, um, and then I went through a series of illnesses for over seven years. 
and they were all physical illnesses, and they went from uh, tick bite fever to dysentery to glandular fever to um, hepatitis, um, tick bite fever again, and then a, a number of near-death experiences where I was washed out at sea. Anyway, it was a very, very long process and a very painful process, and each time I came close to death, I'd receive another vision, another dream. Now, at this stage, it was still apartheid South Africa, and uh, I had a calling to, to meet a teacher, you know, a Kosa or Zulu teacher, a black person who could train me, an African traditional healer. But uh, in those days, um, white people were not allowed to go into the traditional areas, the townships, and, uh, and work and, uh, alongside uh, African people unless they were a, a priest or a police person or a, you know, a doctor or something like that. So I, I was in a very difficult position. I just kept getting sicker and sicker. But my dreams guided me to continue my Zen education. So uh, I started working with a Zen master from South Korea. And um, his name the Zen master Subong. And um, I followed him to, to, to South Korea. And I trained with him and his teacher up in the mountains outside Seoul. And um, I actually had to drop out of university at that stage. I was studying psychology because my illnesses were so severe and my, my dreams were so strong. But the Zen masters looked after me and they taught me um, energy exercises and they um, accepted me to take part in a kyoche, which is an intensive Zen retreat. So I did the Zen retreat with a number of other people for four months and I was accepted to become a monk, a Zen monk. And, um, and when they asked me to become a Zen monk, the top uh, grandmaster, he said, uh, in, a, in the airport of, of Singapore, I still remember it, he said, uh, you become Zen monk and join my Zen army, okay? And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, sir, I can't. And, uh, and I said, and he said, why? And I said, um, because I said, I've never had a girlfriend before. I've never lived a normal life. He said, neither have I. He said, how old are you? I said, uh, just turned 22. He said, 22, no problem. I got full enlightenment to 22. He said, you're almost there, very close, very close. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him, thank you, sir, but, but no. <laughs> because when he pushed me to that point, I realized that I needed to go back to South Africa, find a teacher, vote for Nelson Mandela, because it was 1994 at that time, vote for Nelson Mandela, help with a new um, change in government, and go back to university and find my teacher. So that's exactly what I did. I went back to university, I voted for Nelson Mandela, and, um, and I'm cutting the story very short for you, even though it seems long. I, um, I, uh, I went back and I carried on studying psychology, and I was studying health psychology, and we were up in the, in the townships working with people. And, um, and a number of things happened, and uh, like I say, I want to keep the story short. So I had a feeling about having an interview, a private session with, uh, with a traditional healer, with a Sangoma. So I spoke to one of my friends who's crosser, and he was a translator for the psychology department. And I said to him, please, Sid, can you take me to a, a traditional healer, a Sangoma that you trust, that you would take one of your own family members to? And he said to me, um, John, my, my son has been sick. And my wife has been taking my son to a very good uh, Sangoma lady, and he's getting better now. So I'll take you, take you to her. And I said, perfect. I said, let's go. He said, great. So that night, my teacher-to-be had a dream about me. She said that she had a dream where the great spirit came to her, Utikra, and told her that she needed to prepare herself to train someone from another culture to become a, a full Sangoma like herself, a senior Sangoma. But she must be ready for this. So the next day when I came through her gate with my girlfriend and my, my friend who was translating, she said I was the person that she had to train. She felt it instantly. And she said, and she was afraid because I'm this tall white man. You know, I'm about six foot, close to six foot three, you know. And it was a very unusual situation coming in and, and looking for a session um, in the township. And um, so I went and I sat down with her and she said that she started feeling better about me within a few minutes because I was very humble and very sick and very skinny. You know, I was very, I was very weak, you know, and all I did was put my money down. And then the next job was for her to go into trance and to say what's happening with me. 
So she accurately predicted the last or spoke about the last seven years and how sick I had been. And she said to me, what took you so long to come here? You almost died. And I, there was this pause. And I said, apartheid. And she said, ah, tikra, kosia, habetu. We almost lost you. She said, oh God, oh God, I'm so sorry. We almost lost you. And a tear went rolling down her face. And there was this pause. We just looked at each other. And I knew that I'd found my teacher. And then she said to me, do you want to become a Sangoma? I said, what, what does it mean to become a Sangoma? She says, to become a Sangoma means you're going to be able to heal people in all different ways. The ancestors and the spirits are going to work through you. And you're going to be able to heal people. And another thing is you're going to put on weight. You're not going to be so sick anymore. I said, geez, it sounds like a good deal. I said, I thought, like, who's not going to say yes to that? So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll say yes to that. Yeah, yes. She says, okay, we'll come tomorrow and I'll give you your first white beads tomorrow and you'll be my assistant, you'll be my apprentice. I said, great. Now, I said great, but obviously I was very nervous because she was speaking in Krosa. I didn't know the language. I had a lot to learn, but I felt this energy, powerful energy. So I went home with my girlfriend back to the Zen center, which we had, the, the Buddhist center. And, um, and I left late, and the next morning she phones me and she says, come quickly, there's something here outside the center. So I rushed over to the house, and right outside the door was a neatly folded up white goatskin. And there was dogs everywhere from the township, and not one of the dogs had touched the goatskin. It was just lying there, pristine, pure, pure white. So we, we took it. I rushed up to my teacher's house, about 15 minutes away, and I said, Mom, I said, Mother, this is what we found. She looked at it. She said, where'd you get that? And I explained. It was left outside the, where I was staying, the retreat center. And she paused for a moment. And she was quiet. And, uh, and she said, I didn't leave it there. And then she was quiet again. And then she said, Isn't zia vumile? When we are founding in Lelen Dalangok, she said, the ancestors have agreed to train you in the old ways. Now you're going to be trained in the old Sangoma ways. And I said, she says, do you accept this? And I said, yes. I said, yes, but under one condition. She said, what is that condition? I said, don't cut any corners for me because I'm a white man. I said, you train me as if I'm closer. She said, of course. That's the only way to train you. <laughs> so then I trained with her for over 10 years, you know, and going through all the stages. And that's another thing uh, for the listeners, you know, to become a Sangoma. And also I have, from my experience, a traditional shaman, there's a number of different initiation stages. You don't just do um, practice for a year or whatever, or a few months, and then you made a, a, a traditional healer or a, or a shaman. Um, it takes, in the cross system, it's a number of different initiations and it takes time, and each time the elders test you, and the community tests you in various ways, it could be with dancing, it could be with herbs, the spirits test you in the dreams, there's a number of things happen, um, happen to you during this time. Anyway, it took me 10 years, and, um, and my parents kept saying to me, and my mother kept saying to me, when are you going to finish? It's taking you so long. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. She said, uh, will you ask Mam Gwevu? And my mother had a very good relationship with my teacher, so that was fine. So I went to my mum and I said to her, my mum gave her my teacher, and I said to her, Mama, she says, Ewe, Mama, oh, Mama, wamo, uku kont, twaza nini, nini, I said, when will I finish my twaza, my training? And she looked at me and she says, Andiaz, dingo, ikomakeke izinyanya, andiaz. She says, I don't know, John. It's all up to the ancestors. So I said, well, I'm, what am I going to tell my mother? She says, She says, you tell your mother. It all depends on the ancestors. So I went back to my mom and I said, Mom, Mom Gwever says it all depends on the ancestors. She says, ah, Jesus. She says, knowing our ancestors, she says, anything's possible now. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, so it took 10 years, and I was the first of my, my teacher's students to finish. And, um, 
so that was quite uh, historic in some ways for my teacher and also for for the community and uh, and I was one of the first white guys in the area and to finish this this uh, mm. traditional training so it was quite uh, it was quite a feat and when I finished it uh, I felt uh, what now because my whole life since I was born was 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 to was to do this training and become a sangoma and I thought now now what 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 now for me so uh, it came full circle. I went back to Ireland. I was called back to Ireland to do some work there. And I, I helped with the opening of a book. It was a book fair. And a friend of mine had written a book. And I helped with, um, with dancing. I did, some, I did a bit of dancing, traditional trance dancing at the book opening. And I went into trance. And there was quite a famous musician there from Ireland who helped drum for me. And, and the whole room kind of shook and there was this kind of moment, you know, of uh, Africa meets Celtic tradition because I'm half Irish. It was quite a powerful moment. And uh, my spirits were very, very strong. And afterwards, a lady came up to me. She approached me and she said to me, I don't know if this makes sense to you, but I, she said, my daughter, my daughter's boyfriend has just broken his neck and he's in intensive care units in the Martyr Hospital in Dublin. And I don't know if this makes sense to you, but I'm just wondering, Will you be able to do anything to help him? And there was this moment, you know, because that's how I started at the age of 18 in intensive care with, a, with someone who had a neck injury. Oh. So I said to him, I don't know what I can do. I said, I'm an energy healer. But I said, uh, let's see what happens. She said, okay. I said, the first thing you do, you ask the patient, about, ask him if he wants me to heal him, and you speak to the family, and then you get back to me. So she did that. And she came back to me, and she said, yes, they want you to go in. So I went into the Martin Hospital in Dublin, and, uh, and my, my patient was lying there. And fortunately, he was, uh, he was not in a coma. He was compass mentis. He could speak to me. And, uh, and I used, some, um, I used my, my, the energy that I trained and the energy that was in my body. And I did some prayers, and I worked with herbs, and I worked with stones, and I worked in a traditional way with my ancestors, the way I'd been taught and I said to him, firstly, I said, Do, is it okay for me to, you know, touch your body in various places to get the energy moving? And he was like, I can't feel anything, John. I can't feel anything from my, from my, from my chest down. So uh, I started working with him. And um, after the first session, his, his, his body went into a fever. And his body started shaking. And, um, and then I had to go. And, um, and then I came back the next day and they said that the fever had broken and he was out of intensive care. And then the next session I worked with him. Again, it was all this energy and this shaking in my body. And, um, and at the end of the session, I asked him if he could feel anything. And he started regaining a bit of feeling in his feet. And after the third session, again, he was feeling more feeling in his feet and other parts of his body. And then when I saw him later on, a few months later, he was in rehabilitation and he had regained the feeling in his legs and he started to walk. Now, I'm not saying I, I, I made a, I don't know what kind of effect I made on, on his body or on his spirit, but um, I did feel that what I did help him with was the trauma. His body was in a great deal of trauma and his spirit was in a great deal of trauma. So I feel I was able to do something to ease that situation. Now, the interesting thing, it was again the mother and the same thing with my first patient who died. At this time, it was in Ireland and it was a mother asking me if her son was going to regain his legs again or not. And again, I said I wasn't sure. But fortunately, it was a successful story and he was able to walk again and live again. So I saw my gift as coming full circle. Ten years from someone who had broken their neck, went into a coma and died, to someone in Ireland who'd broken their neck, lost mm. feeling in their legs, to suddenly regaining that and walking out. So I saw that as very successful in terms of my training. Anyway, I could carry on talking, but it's, yeah. I mean, if you want to ask me anything, it's a long story. My story is very long. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, incredibly fascinating. I do have a question, yeah. which yeah, is please. a recurrent thing that um, you spoke of and others have spoken of in many different traditions. Yes. The edge of awakening that comes with illness and approach of death or not approach of death, but just, you know, severe illness. And, you know, I know a lot of these things that don't come easily in words and maybe shouldn't. But I would like you to attempt, at any rate, to, to, to discuss that. You know, that, you know, I know that I was present at a, a, a Sundance um, 
ceremony in South Dakota. Uh, I didn't take part in it because it was too frightening for me. Uh, honestly, I couldn't. But I'd been in other ceremonies with the Bruley Sioux, and I saw how incredibly painful and difficult and horrific it was mm. out there in the sun for two days and nights, tied up mm. by your breasts. You know, incredibly painful. And uh, the result was these young lads who were 17, 18, 19 uh, attained a tremendous consciousness very quickly. I, I saw, I, I spoke to them, you know. So, what is it about that extremism? I don't mean extremism in any pejorative way, but just that, you know, that situation that you find yourself in that brings you closer to either healing or, or very deep perception and vision. That's a very good question. Thanks, David. Um, I think the first question to ask is, do you have a choice? So when you feel so much pain in your life that someone says you do a sun, sun dance and you pierce your nipples and you just dance until you collapse, you were like, sure, I'll do that, you know? If you've had such a tough time, you know, if you've experienced such suffering or if you've come close to death and you've lost people close to you and there's been no way to help them in terms of their medical facilities or then, then it's like that's what you do, you know what I mean? Like my situation, I'd experienced the suffering through the Special Forces soldiers who, who opened up to me. And I mean, I've, I've, I've missed out a lot of the story because of time, but a lot of the soldiers told me about their lives in the front lines. They told me about Angola and Mozambique and living on the edge. And uh, being an empath, I, I feel a lot. So I felt the extreme suffering that they were going through. And then I went through my own in terms of, of, of watching my client die, my patient. So I think for me, um, the answer of sitting in Zen uh, posture for hours and hours and hours until a point of breaking, for me, that was, it was nothing compared to uh, watching the, the suffering of these soldiers who I was working with. So I think uh, to answer your question is when people have gone through a lot of suffering and, um, and this feels like an answer, a way forward that uh, is not taking loads and loads of drugs like heroin or putting themselves to the point of, I don't know, of, of, of like driving a car, um, uh, you know, or taking lots of alcohol. I think, um, I think, Actually, I think that's what can happen to a lot of young people. If there isn't a way out for them, then they will take lots of drugs yes. and they will drive a car very, very fast. So I think for young people who are up against very, very difficult situations of life and death or, or politics or front lines, um, um, front lines military uh, where there's a war, I think uh, they do automatically put themselves in harm's way because they can't find an answer. So if you've got a culture where there is an answer, but it involves lots of pain, it's like, okay, because it's, it's no problem, you know? Mm. I'm yes. going to uh, Great. draw this back from uh, the, that extremity, and I want to just refer to some of the things we do here on Mind Rolling, John, which we like to do, which is really present different ways in which people can get their life in balance. That's a common theme for us. And, uh, of course, what you guys are just talking about, both the David's witness of that experience and some of these experiences you've had, John, are extreme. And that does not necessarily, that, of course, that does happen a lot. And many people can confront that in different ways and make a choice at that moment. But then I like to think of what we can suggest to people on a day-to-day -day basis to be able to function as a fully conscious, as much as possible, human being. And one of the things that struck me in terms of the work that you do that can really help accomplish that, and I'd, I'd, I'd really like to get into, is the dream work. And uh, can you just uh, give us a little bit of an idea of that work and, and, and relate it as much as possible to... Uh, the possibilities it has to enhance that balance that we're talking about getting to, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, sure, Raghu. Um, the dream work is, there's different ways of, of working with the dreams, but firstly, I always encourage people to 
take notice of their dreams. So to write their dreams down, to um, make some kind of diary of their dreams. So the most important thing for, for the listener or for, for any um, student that I have is for them to start to develop a pattern of their dreaming. You know, what is your, it's like, what is your fingerprint? What is the, the print of your, what's the blueprint of your dreaming? What kind of pattern do you, do you have when it comes to your dreams? And um, that's very, very important because um, one dream is like a mandala. It shows your, the whole conscious evolution that you go through. And, it doesn't, and it's a circle, so it doesn't matter if suddenly you've got enlightenment at the age of 50 and at the age of 20 you were doing sex, drugs and rock and roll. And the dreams that you've had your entire life, it forms a circle. And it's, it's, it's almost like the essence of your soul is in each of your dreams. So in our culture, the Cross and Zulu, uh, we say that it's very, very important that people remember their dreams. And if they don't, it's actually seen as an illness. And the reason is, is because it's very important that people know what's happening with their souls. Because if you don't know what's happening with your soul, uh, which is reflected in your dreams, then you're going to behave sometimes in inhuman ways. Or you have the potential to behave in inhuman ways because you are not connected with your soul. Your you say umoya. Umoya means wind, but it also means it also means your soul, your soul essence. So um, the first step with people for to remember their dreams, I encourage them to to write them down, and when they write them down, to just describe them. You know, um, the color, the smell, the taste. What senses are being involved? What senses are being activated? Do they dream in a pattern of three, you know, three different scenes? Do they dream um, like in color? Do they hear music or do you hear sounds or do they smell? These are the first things to start looking at for any dreamer, for any person. And then the next thing to look at is the landscape of someone's dreams. Do you tend to dream about the forests, about the sea, about desert, about rivers, about people? animals, plants, what is the landscape of your dreaming? Because that will, that will give a, a bit of a message about your ancestry and your bloodlines, your DNA. So we are given a lot of knowledge as human beings in our dreams. And the first thing to do is to teach people how to engage with their own power, with their own knowledge base, which means teaching them to write down their dreams to become more mindful. So it's like a dynamic mindfulness practice. And then I also teach people how to dance, how to move their bodies. So I'll teach them how to dance, how to move their bodies, and then how to listen to their heartbeat. So we'll do some, some quite intensive dancing practices, which start off very gentle and build up. I call it shaking medicine, which uh, has its roots in the Khoisan and Bushman peoples of Southern Africa. So I'll do some shaking medicine, some dancing, and then I will encourage people to really work with the rhythm of their own bodies and to really listen to their heartbeats. And then afterwards we'll, we'll be still. People bring their awareness into their hearts. And then after that, um, over a weekend workshop, let's say, I will do a plant medicine wash or healing cleanse. And then we'll do some ceremony where people, I'll teach them how to pray. And then the people dream. So it's like a it's like a it's like a three-tiered approach to engage with the dreaming process. I teach people how to dance, I teach people how to pray, and then I do a plant blessing or uh, uh, we use plant medicine to cleanse, cleanse the body. And then I always find that people dream. So uh, the element of extremism or the dynamic element of the medicine in terms of Sangoma medicine, would be found with dancing. Now, I don't, um, the dancing isn't that intense, really. But what it does, it brings people into their soul, into their bones and their blood. And then people go on a journey. And sometimes the journey, journey can be quite hard in terms of really feeling their karma, really feeling their soul and their spirit. And then my job is like a, a coach or the captain of a ship. And I tell them to just let go, feel the wind, your umoya, your spirit, Call in the great spirit, call in your ancestors, breathe, breathe, you're going to be okay. 
And uh, fortunately, I've, you know, I've been traveling the world for over seven years now and I've traveled all over and I've witnessed some incredible dreams. And when people do have very sacred dreams, I always say to them, this is your gift, your gift from the other world. How you use your gift is up to you. So one workshop or one ceremony is just the start of the journey. So I encourage them to carry on with the prayers, carry on with listening to the heartbeats, carry on with this mindfulness practice, and also carry on with writing their dreams out. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, in tradition that I'm more familiar with in East, which you are as well, uh, yeah. gone through uh, as a Zen monk, uh, the, uh, especially the Tibetans, um, there is an emphasis, and talk about mindfulness, about how to bring that into a consciousness, into your dream cycles, so that uh, th uh, you're bringing that day-to-day -day awareness into your dream cycles. Is there something like this in, in terms of the work that you do around dreams of training people or giving people an idea how to bring that mindfulness into your dream cycle? Yes. I mean, everything I said to you um, just now is just, it's automatic that it's going to come into the dream cycle. So the first thing I do is I really train people to, to pray. Uh, pray from your bones, Pray from your heart. Pray in a very clear way. And when you pray, you use your voice. So you don't pray like, you use your voice. So it'd be like in Kosa, we would say, which in English means, I honor and praise the great spirit. I honor and praise my mother and father. I honor and praise the lineage of my father, the lineage of my mother. I honor and praise the spirits who are holding me and guiding me and blessing me. I honor and praise you and I welcome you into my life. Diti, I ask you to please open the road for me. Show me how I can be of service to this world. Mm. So those are the basic kind of prayers which are translated from Zulu and Krosa. But I say to people, do not say these prayers unless you are willing to listen to the answer. Ah. Because if you say, open the road, and I want to be of service, and then your dreams come and your ancestors show you how to do it, it's important for you to take the next step. So it's like when that woman said to me when I was 17, in order for you to realize your destiny, you need to come close to death. For me, that wasn't an issue because there was already the South African army and there was a war going on, and I... Uh, I felt like I wanted to become a paramedic. So for me, it wasn't an issue to, to go into the medical corps because the calling was so strong. So I say to people, be aware of what you pray for. Be courageous and follow through with it and keep listening and keep praying and the road will open. But don't expect it to be easy and don't expect these challenges to, um, you know, the, the stronger the medicine you carry or the stronger your path, the stronger the sometimes the suffering or the challenges. <laughs> mm. So you really are making a direct um, connection uh, with the idea of, um, s of, of prayer in a very uh, traditional sense, in a very formal sense. Of, so perhaps that's something that people might do before they fall asleep to have these... Uh, uh, prayers uh, done out loud or inside themselves? Is that something that you uh, train people? Yes. Yes, I do train people like this. But I also say to people that it doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what ethnic grouping you're coming from. It doesn't matter what religious group you come from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. If you're a human being, you've got red blood, I can train you. I can teach you. Because it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Sikh, it doesn't matter because these prayers are about Ubuntu. It's about being a human being. So, um, so I don't wouldn't say it's religious. It's more, it's more humane or spiritual. But and but it's yeah. No, just I hear what you're saying, but that. The doing of it, n n I know it, it matters nothing. I mean, we, uh, I think you know a little bit about our tradition, yeah, yeah, which is, you know, the first thing that we sat down in front of our guru who said, who pointed his finger and said, 
in Hindi, sub-ek. It is all one. And so we never had anything but that concept drilled into us from the get-go that there, it, there is only one. And it manifests, of course, in many different ways. But in terms of the dream, back to the dream cycle, um, that the conscious um, practice of whatever prayer that you might use from whatever tradition has the potentiality to set off mindfulness in your dream cycle should you do this before you uh, fall asleep. That, uh, that's, that is something that uh, you use in your practice, right? Yes, definitely, yes. Uh, working with the prayers and some kind of mindfulness in terms of listening to your heartbeat it uh, it can set off, it can set off, uh, yeah, it can set off a very strong karma or very strong. Um, it can open the door for you in terms of whatever your destiny is. Definitely, you can wake up in the dream, and and have these experiences that I've been speaking about, which is um, very powerful for the individual. Yes, mm. I, I I have to um, tell you something, which yeah, forgive me if it sounds like a trivialization. It really isn't. Um, Last December, um, I uh, woke up in the middle of the night and uh, was very disturbed and um, um, grim, you know, and without any kind of ground. And uh, I prayed to be taken from that because it was not helpful. And I had no dreams. And then the following morning, um, I woke up and just before I woke up, but it was not a dream, I was awake, I saw um, a cat, uh, a particular kind of cat, a rare cat, a calico cat. Calicos are, there are no males, they're all females. Mm -hmm. And they occur out of some genetic um, error, if you like, that's not the word, right word, but that's what they call it, uh, between two other kinds of cats. And um, <laughs> I saw this cat, so clearly and for such a long protracted period of time that I was quite shocked. I asked my partner, who's the head of the Humane Society here, if she ever got any calico cats. And she said, no, it's just not. It's so rare that we don't get them. And if we get them, they're old. And I accepted that. The next day, she called me from her office in Manhattan and said, God, we got a three-month-old calico cat this morning. Do you want it? Come and look at me. So I went and I looked at her. She jumped on me, stayed on my lap, and fell asleep on my lap. I took her away with me. And I listened to you talking about the way of the leopard. And when I heard that a few weeks ago, I immediately thought of my little cat. She's a small, delicate cat. And what I realized was that in the last nine months since I've had her, my life has slowed down. I'm a very frenetic person. I walk from room to room. I dance around. I do things. I'm never in the same spot for long in a minute. She has slowed me down because she freaks out if I do that. She goes ape. She just is hopped up, you know. And in the last nine months, I've learned to slow my thing down. And I'm not saying I walk in the way of the leopard because of a small feline, but the two things came together in my mind. I dreamt of her. She appeared. I got her. I did not want a cat. Not really. Mm. I just didn't want any kind of pet. You know, I've had children. I'm done with that. <laughs> I really am. I'm so happy to be free. I love my daughters. But this was a whole visionary thing. She came to me. I got her. And then the last nine months, I have definitely slowed down my trip. Mm. Just wanted to mention that to you and see if that had any connection for you, uh, given the, mag the majesty of the leopard and the amazing thing you talk about, about walking like a leopard with the feeling of soles of your feet, which affected me profoundly. And then I immediately thought of this story and I couldn't wait to tell you about it. And I just wanted you to respond to that it, 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 with a smile, if you like. But you know, <laughs> is, is, is that something even remotely connected? Because it was a kind of a dream. Yes, I think you've had a very powerful and um, profound experience there. So definitely, that's uh, that's what I'm talking about, David. That's definitely what I'm talking about. I mean, when you pray um, in these particular mindful ways, whether you pray in a mindful way before you sleep or whether you wake up in the dream state or coming out of the dream state, 
in a mindful way praying, I feel that these prayers are answered when it's coming from your soul. So my sense is what you're saying there is you're praying from a very deep place from your soul and that was answered. I mean, whether it's a cat, a wild cat or a leopard, it's all part of the same family. And uh, the cat and the leopard teach us, teach us how to connect with our intuition, connect with our soul. Because what a, what a cat is, is showing us is, um, is, the, is the intuition, is how we can live in harmony with our souls. Because they are wild. A domestic cat is just as wild as a leopard sometimes. You Absolutely. Know? And they show us how to jump, how to focus. They have such sublime intelligence, cats. And uh, no matter how many years they've been domesticated, they're still very similar to, um, to, you know, to wild cats like the leopard and the lion. So uh, I, I use the leopard as a motif or as a totem because we work with the leopard, the cat and the lion, the wild cat and the lion and the lynx. We work with all the cat families in the Sankoma tradition because it mirrors where we are going, which is harmony with nature, um, intuitive intelligence. That's what we are teaching, intuitive intelligence. And a Sangoma goes through all these, intu uh, all these ceremonies to harness our natural intuitive intelligence. So what your cat is doing there, David, is showing you how to slow down so you can live more in more harmony with yourself, with your soul, with your heart, and so that you can reach your potential. Because you've got a lot of energy, a lot of intelligence. And when you slow down and you come from a more centered place, then you're going to be um, much, you're going to, you're going to benefit yourself and also all beings. You're going to help a lot of people by being more centered. So this is what, uh, let's say the great spirit or the ancestors did. They, they, they showed, showed you an animal that can help you to reach your potential. Now we must remember the olden days of the witch and the broomstick and the cat. You know, we were brought up in, um, from yeah. Europe, European backgrounds, a lot of us, with the totem or the, the motif of the witch riding a broomstick and having a black cat. So often with healers, there's an animal, a cat, a dog, and the animal helps to remind us about our, our intuition, which is what is the real healer here. And that intuition is connected to nature. So the more we can connect with ourselves, the more we can connect with nature, the more we can help other people and help our communities. Oh, thank you, John. That's, that's coming great. from you. That's yes. incredibly helpful. Yeah. Oh, good. Wonderful, Thank wonderful. Um, I have something. We're getting to close to the end of our time here, but there's one thing that I, I do want to bring up and get you to comment on. Um, and, and some of this is a little bit, I'm going to admit to something that's not uh, particularly enhancing my uh, reputation of openness and love. Um, yeah. But uh, I was talking to so I we have family in India, yeah. And by that I mean the the family that we were introduced to when we uh, met uh, Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, and uh, I recent I'm 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 going to uh, I'm going to India towards the end of the month actually, and I said to him, gee, I'd really like you to come with me. I'm going to see somebody, and I want you to join me. And uh, he said, well, uh, that's not a good time. I can't really go then. <clears throat> I said, really, why? He said, well, it's, uh, we have ancestor ceremonies over this, that particular week. I said, ancestor ceremonies? Yeah, well, can't you get somebody else to do it? He <laughs> laughed at me. He goes, no, that's not possible. And in my head, I was like, what ancestor ceremonies? You know, I mean, what are we talking about here? And I was very... I didn't say this to him, of course, but I had a derogatory kind of attitude towards it because I wanted him to come with me. And so here we are, speaking with you, John, and this is a very, very integral part of who you are and your training and so on. And I have to admit, I don't, uh, you know, my concept, uh, you know, I'm, I'm locked in, and that's why I said about admitting some of this stuff before I started talking about it. I'm locked in conceptually around uh, ancestor, this concept. I mean, to me, you know, we incarnate, we spend, uh, you know, lifetime. we have been incarnating into different bodies for lifetimes and, you know, gazillions of lifetimes to come back to the one 
in the most simplistic of terms. And I, uh, you know, uh, all, everyone's been our mother, the Tibetans, say, the Tibetans say, you know, every one of us. And I do not understand this ancestor concept related to how it can point any, point the way uh, or inform or uh, enhance intuitive uh, understanding of our souls. Can you just, uh, I know this is a gigantic subject, and, and uh, yeah. but uh, if you can elucidate a little bit, it would be great. To yeah, somebody sure. like ignorant like me right now. <laughs> No, uh, thank you, thank you, Raghu. Um, yes, I can explain it to you in a, in a few sentences. Really, it's it's quite simple. Really, the whole idea of ancestor worship, or in Southern Africa, comes around the word we call izinyanya, which is a Zulu and Kosa word. And um, izinyanya actually mean the silent hidden ones, or the nature spirits. But the silent hidden ones is the direct translation. And it wasn't given to me through the dictionary because the dictionaries were written by the missionaries. It was, it was told to me by a, a very well-spoken Zulu shaman who's over 90 years old. His name's Kredo Mutwa. So we had a chat and he explained to me the concept of Izinyanya, of the ancestors. So in traditional Africa, they would never talk to the great spirit Utiko or the great dreamer. They would always connect with those parts of their family who had passed on. So their grandparents, great-grandparents who had gone over to the other side. So when there's calamity, there's flood or famine, or there's a need to connect with the spirit realm, they would always connect with those parts of their family who, who had connected over, to, who had gone over to the other side. So, because um, that was seen as being respectful. They would never just approach the great spirit or God because that was seen as rude, as not being dignified. So they would say to the ancestors, please speak to the great spirit God and let them know that we are in pain. Please speak to them, uh, speak to God and ask for help. So that's how it started, really. But um, all I can say is it works like a triangle. If you think of a triangle, the great spirit or the great dreamer being the top or the great creator, that's the top of the triangle. And then... The other two sides are your mother and father. So I always say to people that uh, we always honor the great spirit of Tikro, the great dreamer, first. And then we honor and praise our mother and father because they have birthed us into this physical realm. So in order to know your destiny, you have to give cognizance to this physical realm. We've come into this physical realm through our mother and father. So it's important to honor the gift of life that came to us through the realm of our mother and father. So you just honor and praise your mother's people and your father's people because for some reason you have incarnated in this particular family. There's a reason for it which is beyond our understanding. So all we, we say is we honor and we, we give thanks and praise to our mother's lineage and our father's lineage because... Um, it's a way of honoring the gift of life. And often when I teach people to do this, the next thing they'll do is they'll have dreams about animals. And they'll say to me, but John, I wanted to connect with my Auntie Martha, and here I am dreaming about a horse. And I said, well, maybe the horse is your Auntie Martha, and we always laugh about that. And they say, um, and the main thing here is, when you are connecting deeply with your ancestors, i.e. your mother's people, your father's people, it's often quite common for you to dream about animals then because you've basically, you've basically given thanks for the gift of life and, uh, and it's res responded through an animal coming. So I always say that once you give thanks for the gift of life, life gives thanks to you. Life honors life. So it's important along the spiritual road, no matter what tradition you're part of, for you to actually show gratitude. Gratitude for the life you have. And as you show gratitude, so the doors are open for you where you are able to realize your gifts, your spiritual gifts, and where the universe or the ancestors or the spirits or the angels can come to you and show you the next step along your road. But if you are praying and you say, show me this, give me that, show me that, give me this, it's, uh, it's not very easy for the spirits to work with you. But if you, from a heartfelt place, say, I give thanks for my life. I give thanks for my mother's people and my father's people who have created me. 
I give thanks to the great spirit. You know, this sense of gratitude leads to surrender, leads to humility. And this is what leads to these profound dreams. Mm. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's hard for me to explain um, in a few sentences, but all I can say to you is that we honor our ancestors because we are honoring the gift of life that has come to us through the portal of these two physical beings, which are our mother and our father. So uh, we are, you know, we are praising the great spirit, God, um, but we are paying respect to our, our the first two lineages, our two first two spiritual lineages of any human being are the mother's line and the father's line. So if you decide to become a Buddhist or a Christian or a Sikh, it doesn't matter. You would first honor your mother's people and your father's people and you would say to them, I honor you guys and I ask you to please bless me as I become um, a Sikh. Or a, or a Christian, or a Buddhist monk. Perfect. John, <laughs> Does that make sense? Terrific. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, oh. and uh, yeah, uh, the sense of gratitude especially strikes me um, directly. And uh, gratitude leading to surrender and humility and so on. So beautifully said. Mm, you are you. a wonderful human thank being, you. John. I'm so happy that David and I met you and we <laughs> were you. able to do this. And uh, so we do want uh, people to be able to take advantage. Uh, actually, I know that uh, John is coming to America, uh, I believe, uh, end of September into October, something like that, John? Um, yes, I'll be, I'll be touring the United States through October and parts of November. And um, I'll be going to the East Coast and also the West Coast. So uh, Syracuse, New York State, right, Berkeley, right. San Francisco, Wonderful. Boulder, Colorado, Wonderful. and uh, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. So uh, johnlockley.com, J-O-H-N-L-O-C-K-L-E-Y.com. Go there, and John's schedule is there, and you can uh, reach him. Uh, I mean, he does uh, private stuff. I think you do Skype stuff. You do phone stuff, right? Yeah, and I do. Yes. So yep. uh, you, you should take advantage uh, because uh, this is one beautiful human being and, um, and very special. Uh, so uh, w we're going to get back with you, and uh, w I don't know if you're uh, whatever area you are in that we are in, either David and I, we would love to get with you, John. Yes and have you back on the show and uh thank you so much again yeah thank to, you to being Thanks, on, guys. on mind rolling and uh, everybody come to mindpodnetwork.com and you can find us the mind rollers you can find ramdas krishnadas sharon salzberg jack cornfield lama surya das joseph goldstein chris grasso we have them all all Danny of the, Goldberg and, and Danny Goldberg we should yeah. not forget our good friend Danny so uh, John namaste yes thank, thank you, you. Namaste, namaste guys namaste. thanks Dave thanks Raghu thank you